Love that upbeat music. I used to sing that to myself all the time. I got you. You got you. Oh, God's children. <laughs> Enough of that. We have the most amazing music here at Christ Church. It's like Hollywood, Nashville, New York, London, Paris, and Sir Wickley. <laughs> Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope of glory and the joy of singing of it and anticipating it. And as we spend this time together now, Lord, come and meet us one by one. Give us a sense of reality concerning your presence, your love, the immediacy of your love for us. Toward that end, Lord, please take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we are fast coming to the conclusion. Next week, in fact, we'll conclude this uh, lengthy series of addresses about the prodigal son. I know the title has been called The Prodigal God, and that's an evocative title because we normally equate the word prodigal with wayward, like the son who went and blew everything. But the word actually really does mean, like it sounds, prodigious. It really means excessive, amazing. We talk about children who are child prodigies. Same word. Prodigal, prodigy, prodigious. Meaning over the top, brilliant. Recklessly extravagant, it's been translated. That's our God. And when it speaks about a prodigal son, he takes God's extravagance to him, because that's the picture of the father who's giving the inheritance, takes that extravagance and recklessly spends it, blows it all, and ends up with not a cent, groveling with the pigs, eating what they eat. That's not how he started up his life with his cash and everything he had, but that's how he finished up. And then the wonderful, amazing grace of God to receive him. Because that's the father running out to meet him, looking for him each day, seeing him in the distance, coming back home. You get the idea that all those days he was gone, the father was looking for him longing for him. And when he gets a sight of him, as messed up as he was, he knew who he was. He knew his boy. And he ran out there and embraced him. And in the same prodigious fashion, lavished his goodness on that wayward son. Well, what we're looking at today, and on page six in your service sheet, you've got the words that were read for us concerning this son, in amongst the pigs, coming to his senses. Luke 15, verse 17, when he came to his senses. Oh, sooner or later, may all those, even sitting here this morning, 
but in our lives, our extended families and associations who are just squandering everything God has given to them, using it recklessly for their own pleasure. And we know how to do that. And everything in our media encourages us to do that. And to live right at the edge, the far boundaries of our economic supplies. Borrow if you have to. Told that it's really worth it to go spend and enjoy ourselves because we deserve it. And I really am bothered all the time when I keep hearing in advertising, we deserve, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. God has given us recklessly in a sense of everything that we have, and what are we doing with it? He's been prodigious in his generosity to us. And one of the ways God draws us, one of the ways he draws us back to himself is bring us to an end of ourselves. Sometimes it's because we have become so successful that having arrived at whatever is the pinnacle of success that we have been measuring our efforts by, we get there and we say, is this all there is? You mean this is it? This is what I spent my life for? Sometimes he drives us rock bottom till we hit bottom. And no matter what it is that uh, we are clinging to and using in excess for our own ends, it ends up destroying us. So that whatever the addiction is, whether it's pleasure, whether it's power, whether it's drugs, whether it's drink, who knows what it may be. We push it to excess And we do get addicted to things in such a way that we we have to have more, and we have to have more, and it gives less and less satisfaction. And what we end up doing because of that dragging effect of having to have more, we end up destroying ourselves and those around us. The price we pay is excessive. That's the picture of the prodigal son. God brings him to an end of himself. How could he be groveling with the pigs, eating what they eat? Nobody gave him a thing, it says. Well, in coming to his senses, you see what he says, verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father. And look at verse 20. So he got up and went back to his father. He not only contemplated it, thought what a good idea that would be, but he got up and did it. And he went back home. And God will take every circumstance in our life to draw us back home. We're looking today under the title of Redefining Hope. Redefining Hope. Without hope, we are hopeless. And hope is such a sustaining, driving force in our lives to hope that things will be better tomorrow, 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 somewhere over the rainbow, later. Hope sustains us through the most difficult times to press on, to endure, to see our way through, to hope. And God can bring us to a place of hopelessness where there is nowhere to go, There is no end in sight. We've come to an end of ourselves. That's what this chap did. 
As Jesus tells the story, in telling the story, he's telling the story about life. And he's after both the reckless spenders and the self-righteous do-gooders. Those are his two audiences. People like the prodigal son who just goes and blows it all. And then the self-righteous, the holy ones, the religious leadership of his day who scorned Jesus because of what? Going after the reckless, messed-up people in his day. And the self-righteous over here criticize him for doing it. And he tells this story. But behind this story is the knowledge that there is a father somewhere who will receive us back. That's the hope we are counting on. There is a father who is a heavenly father who loves us and will receive us back. We're counting on that. And I'll tell you this, if we ever lose the hope of that, we are hopeless. It's all over. And some of you get there. And you become so despondent and the world is outwardly, aggressively in our culture today attacking the very notion that there really is a heaven, that there really is a God, that he really holds us accountable and that he is the source of joy and profitability and success and honor. They're attacking that and they want you to come to them, whoever them is, the power brokers, the elites of today, the thought control folks who tell us what we can say and what we can't say. Whatever's going on, behind it all, even the attacks on the righteous and the belittling of the church and the deprecation of faith just to put it down and destroy it and minimize it and divorce us from the stream of culture in which we want to live and influence for good the way people follow whatever their desires are. In that process, God is still at work, amazingly, amazingly. So he can take all the damage and the harm and the reckless sin of people and even turn that amazingly to good effect. Because he is God, and with God all things are possible. And what we're speaking of here today is that longing of that same God looking out to draw us back home. That is the hope. God made us for himself. And what we long for is what he made us for. In 1662, a man by the name of Blaise Pascal died. 1662. Four centuries or so ago. And he is the man who gave to us the notion that inside every one of us is a God-shaped vacuum that we try to fill with the excesses of pleasure, power, influence, whatever. To have family, raise children, even become addicted to sex. Whatever it is we get after to fill our lives with it, to fill that emptiness, that space in our life. 
Blaise Pascal said, in every one of us is a God-shaped vacuum. That means that as vacuums seek to suck everything into themselves, so we, with that vacuum, try to seek, seek and draw to ourselves power, influence, pleasure, whatever. And when we've had it all, experienced it all, it's still an emptiness that only God can fill because God made us for himself and he gives us that longing for a memory and the longing of more that we, in that longing, end up recognizing Jesus as the one we are looking for. And the story of this prodigal son coming home to his father is such an amazing picture of God being gracious, looking out for him, and then welcoming him and restoring him and throwing the party. And this is a picture of us, picture of all humanity. Wherever they are, God has that longing, and they have that longing. And often you, you have that longing described as the memory of a childhood, the memory of a place, the memory of a day gone by. Tim Keller, who's the author of the book, The Prodigal God, which we are kind of following along with, taking his chapter titles and expounding these passages bit by bit each day we gather here in the church. Tim Keller speaks of his wife, Kathy, and Kathy used to be a part of our student ministry all those years ago. She was raised in Western PA, and they had a cabin, which Tim Keller describes as a ramshackle cabin, up on Lake Erie, where she spent some 29 years or so going with the family summer by summer. And she has such an overwhelming feeling of comfort and pleasure in thinking about that place. But he said, when we went to visit it, it was empty. There was nothing there. Each time I go to England, I go to my home in Oxford. And I stand and look at it. It's got all the memories of my growing up as a little boy, the games we played, the mischief we got up to, the things that happened. Strange to say, I keep going back there thinking I might get a different feeling, but I go back there and I look and it's empty. There's nothing there. I can see the house, it's really there. Amazingly, the two schools I went to, Donington was one of them, and the other, Temple Cowley, I would go back and visit them and there was nothing there either. It was empty. And then they knocked them down. I nearly got involved in that politically, so they said, don't do it. I'm living in America. They've done that in America. There are no more small schools. It's all big schools, and people lose their identity in them. But when all is said and done, the memory is a longing for a home, for a place 
which one way or another I would suspect you experience, even as I'm talking about it. That's part of how God has made us for that longing to go back to a dad, to a mom, to a place, to an experience, to a sense of belonging. The Father has created us in such a way as to draw us back. And all avenues of access to the Father have markers in our lives by which he is directing us to himself. I knew there had to be more. I knew there had to be more. I remember walking home from school. School was close enough for us to walk to and walk home from. And asking myself one day, why are you going to school, guest? All the teachers called us by our last name, and I started calling myself by my last name as I'm talking to myself. Why are you going to school, guest? And I told myself to get a good education. And then I asked myself, why do you need a good education? The answer I gave myself? So you can get a good job. Well, why do you want a good job, guest? Well, so I can earn good money. Well, why do you want good money, guest? So you can live comfortably and securely, I told myself. And then I had a question. So what? And I knew as a 15, 16-year-old that there had to be more. And I didn't know what it was because I wasn't raised to go to church. We never prayed in our home. I had no idea, but I knew there had to be more. To change tracks here just for a moment, I used to, with an organization, go and speak to cities in large gatherings, very similar to the one that we're going to have with Franklin Graham here this August, which we at Christ Church are going to be throwing our lot in with, hook, line, and sinker. So be ready for that as we move toward August of this year at the Consul in downtown Pittsburgh. Large gathering, three nights. We're going to be very much a part of that as a congregation. But I used to organize cities in the same way with a team. And part of what we would do from time to time is get a black preacher... African-American, to stand with me and we would both preach, not simultaneously, but one would preach first and the other second. And for a week we would be preaching to a city such as Memphis or Norfolk, I remember. Good news in black and white is how we presented it, so that race would not be the issue. Both of us speaking the same gospel message and gathering the churches of the city. And when we were in Memphis, and you know who was assassinated in Memphis? Martin Luther King. That city came together. And so I, in order to be credible to the black churches, had to go and preach around them ahead of time so that they could believe that I could really preach. 
They knew I couldn't jump. They wanted to know whether I could preach. And so here I am preaching in Dr. Alvin Jackson's church, 8 o'clock in the morning. I move out on the platform with him, and there are 2,000 African-American faces looking right back at me. Large balcony, and then the ground floor. Behind me, about 150 youths in a choir who were spectacular. Because Dr. Jackson was not preaching that morning, he preached my introduction. It was spectacular. And he said wonderful things. And as he came toward the close of what he said, he said, the choir is going to sing. And the next voice you will hear when they are finished is the voice of Dr. John Guest. And I thought to myself, get me out of here. <laughs> Completely intimidated. And then the choir sang, and did they sing? And the young lady who was the lead voice, brilliant. And the lead line of the song, which she echoed time and again, were these words. I have a father, and I know he cares for me. I have a father, and I know he cares for me. When they were finished, the place went wild. I was choking on my tears. And I stood and went to the podium and said, I have a father, and I know he cares for me. And as distinct from this congregation right now, all I had to say was, I have a father. Amen. And they were saying, amen, come on, bring it. Yeah, we, we, got a, we got a man down here just like I set him up. And it was just amazing. And I told them immediately what they could never have guessed. Because here I am, a visiting preacher, going to have a high profile in the city. Dr. Jackson's put his congregation in front of me. I am Dr. John Guest. What they could never have guessed was that I was raised in poverty. Because my dad committed suicide when I was age seven. And I told them that. From there on out, we struggled to the point that I remember, and I'm telling them this, that I went to school in girls' shoes. Not high heels, but clearly girls' shoes, because that's all there was to wear. I could tell you so much. To go swimming, my mother took an old sweater. You, you cannot imagine this, going swimming with the school to learn to swim as a little boy. She took the sweater, cut off the arms, turned it upside down, that's where my legs were, and sewed up the V-neck. That became my swimsuit. I couldn't play school soccer with the team, though I was good, because we had no soccer boots. 
I can remember, remember going to the pantry, nothing there except a cheese rind. I am not exaggerating. We were raised in poverty. My mother went to work. I ended up having to manage the children. There were two other brothers. And then a third came along later, the third brother. That made four of us. But I said, one night, listening to Billy Graham in London, as an 18-year-old, I went forward and asked Jesus to come into my life and handed my life over to him. And when I went out onto the streets, I knew I had a father. And I knew he cared for me. And I knew he would never leave me or abandon me or forsake me, never desert me. And with that same breath, I knew in, in my heart of hearts that I also had a home that was heaven. Not only that I had a father in heaven, but I had a home in heaven. And that was my ultimate destination. And I also knew, and I didn't own a Bible at the time, so I had a long way to come back from wherever we were, a kind of deficit, a, a knowledge and information deficit an experiential deficit. But I knew again that my life would count for something that night, that it would count for something between that evening and whenever I died. By giving Jesus first place in my life, asking him to come on in and take over, I knew that my sins were forgiven. I knew that heaven was my home. I knew that I had a heavenly father and that my life, given whatever the circumstances were by which I had arrived at that age and at that moment, whatever they were, as negative as most of them had been, my life would count for something good and positive. I would leave my mark. Not because of me, but because I belong to Jesus. And our ultimate hope, friends, is not the American dream, as great as it is. It's not the affluence and comfort of a healthcare system, a good education. Because that all becomes an idol to us, and as an idol, crumbles in our hands. And we have the distant memory somehow that there must be more. There has to be something else. And so we worship success and we worship pleasure and we worship affluence and we worship security and we worship good health and we worship good looks and we worship good minds and athletic ability. But without that ultimate hope, ultimately, you're looking at nothing. Is that all there is? Some of you are old enough to remember Peggy Lee, a great jazz singer from another generation. And she used to sing a song. Is that all there is? She went to the circus as a child. Is that all there is to the circus? She remembers seeing fire engines rushing to a, a blaze. Is that all there is to, to a fire? And then she fell romantically in love. Is that all there is to love? 
Is that all there is? The answer is no, that's not all there is. And the longing for something else and something more is that God is a Father who looks out for us and wants to bring us home. And even that we, in coming to Him and have joyful, wonderful worship as we have here, and get excited when we hear a choir singing as we've just heard it, or hear the words of truth preached and proclaimed and addressed to us and say, that makes sense, and we're on our way to coming to our senses and we get our priorities realigned, even for all that. And as wonderful as that is, heaven is so much more. One of my great and extraordinary verses is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. As great as it may be, the joy of knowing God, of having a heavenly father, of having our sins forgiven, of having a positive mindset toward the future because we know who holds the future and he's the one who holds our hand. To have the expectation that God is using us, working through us, bringing us along, and that heaven is our home, as great as that all is, it's but a foretaste, says the Scripture. It's a harbinger. It's a taste of the real deal. And even for us worshiping here, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. That's our ultimate hope. That redefines all other hopes. When we have that hope, we can make our way to the destiny God has for us. So whether I die quickly or I have a lingering death, I have the hope of glory with Jesus. So do you, if you have him in your life. That, dear friends, redefines hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope you have generated within us. Thank you for the promise of heaven. Thank you for looking for us longingly, seeing us waste our talent, use up our resources for that which eventually just falls to pieces. And you keep watching and waiting, calling us home. Help us to come home, Lord Jesus. Father, we run to you as you run to us and embrace us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.